91.3 KBCS Community Radio, a listener-supported public service of Bellevue College. Good morning and welcome to The Grit. I'm your host, Yuko Kadama. This hour is the first of a three-part series, KBCS Year in Review 2020. You'll look back at KBCS local stories that defined our year and what a year it was. The stories in this series were produced by KBCS volunteer reporters, student producers, and KBCS staff. These stories were possible by the support of listeners like you. Community access to making media makes KBCS a vital part of the local media landscape. KBCS. This is Yuko Kodama. You'll start off the reflection of 2020 by going out on the streets from Garfield High School in January. People gathered for a rally and march for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. KBCS's Gol Hugugi and I gathered sounds and interviews from participants. Here's an audio collage from the event with community organizer and educator Nikita Oliver encouraging marchers along the route as she spoke in front of the King County Courthouse. Incarceration is at an all-time high in this country. People are being criminalized for acts of poverty. People are being criminalized while our communities are under-resourced and over-policed. And it is beholden upon us to be the ones that stand to protect our communities. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and protect each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. When our communities are over-policed, it is a chain. When our babies are caged, it is a chain. When we are prevented from jobs, employment, education, it is a chain. And it is our duty to break those chains. MLK did not stand loved by most, but now he stands loved by many. Not because he did what made the political establishment comfortable, but because he did what was needed. But because the freedom fighters who stood with him did what was needed because they stood in the face of fascism, imperialism, capitalism, and racism, and they said, we will not stand for it any longer. We cannot stand for it any longer. We cannot stand for it any longer. And it is our duty to win. Shout out to MLK, y'all. Remember all the freedom fighters. Remember all the freedom fighters. Remember all the freedom fighters. It is our time and our time to act. Peace, make your way this way. Keep the march going. Keep the march going. Keep it going, y'all. Shout out, shout out, shout out. And any specific uh, teachings or action that you carry with you personally from his teaching? Uh, well, I still believe in um, uniting one another, the human race, okay? Black, brown, orange, yellow, it don't matter. We are human, so we should all love one another. It's part of the human race. What's a, a struggle for you right now personally that you want to no. share? jobs our men especially our black african-american men has been locked up because it's a system to keep them locked up in their mind mentally and to keep them locked up in their physically i'm totally against it you it know. affects each and every one of our brothers our fathers our children it affects us all 
We're just trying to keep it from going through our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Yes. Great. Thank you. What is You're your welcome. name? Sheila Warren. How was today for you? Today was a great day because we got to celebrate that Black Lives Matter. How old are you? Eight. What is your name? Jasir Beeson. For me, what's heavy on my heart are the kids, the kids on the border that we seem to have forgotten about. So I bring my own kids out today and say, you know, they can't march, so we're marching for the kids on the border today. Thank you so much. What's your name? Betty Campbell. Thank you. I'd say uh, this is a very, very crucial year for the election season. And in general, if you've been a part of historically marginalized communities, I hope that uh, people get out and vote. Uh, that's what's on my mind today. Dr. Martin Luther King fought for civil rights, and um, we're still fighting. So, you know, make some good decisions at the polls this year, everybody. Thank you. What is your name? My name is Fred Lutz. That audio collage of the Martin Luther King Jr. March in Seattle ended with community organizer and educator Nikita Oliver encouraging marchers on in front of the King County Courthouse as they made their way along their route. That story was by KBCS's Gol Hogugi and myself. You can go to kbcs.fm for photos from the event. 91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. I'm Yuko Kodama. You're listening to a special three-part series, A Year in Review 2020, where we take a look back at the year through stories we produced at KBCS. Any of the audio you hear on this show can be found at kbcs.fm by searching the News tab or wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, by searching KBCS. Next is a KBCS interview with Montserrat Padilla, co-director of the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, or WISEN. Padilla describes what happened in the beginning of this year when Washington's Northwest Detention Center started housing LGBTQ detainees. Padilla describes the efforts to support and protect this population of immigrants. Tell me about the guidelines that there have been so far for people who identify as transgender. Being LGBTQ in over 80 countries around the globe often puts your life at risk. Government laws can penalize you with that. Countries like Jamaica, like Saudi Arabia, different countries that continue to uh, oppress and intentionally harm LGBTQ communities. And so 
One of the root causes of migration continues to be the inability to access safety for LGBTQ migrants who come seeking asylum and fleeing their countries from violence and persecution. And so the United States has often been seen as a safe haven for many folks in the LGBTQ global community. And many folks come with that perspective of hoping to find safety and a safe haven here in, in the United States. Unfortunately, even under the Obama administration, LGBTQ detention was in the rice. Folks were uh, were fleeing through migrant caravans and seeking refuge. And instead of finding a welcoming uh, country through our legal immigration procedures, they were detained for numerous months in harsh conditions, which took the lives of some of our LGBTQ siblings in immigration detention centers, specifically trans folks. With that notion that was taking place in the in the Obama administration time, a lot of LGBTQ national partners and local grassroots groups began to organize the need to address LGBTQ detention as a prime center issue for our immigration debate and conversations. And so through the advocacy and work of ongoing uh, showcasing examples of how LGBTQ detention, trans detention specifically, was not a safe practice, um, immigration and custom enforcement released a guidance protocol memo in 2015 after ongoing organizing by LGBTQ migrants ourselves on how to identify, how to effectively process with the purpose for release of LGBTQ detainees. So I think one of the questions that folks would ask, they would ask, do you identify as one form other than your gender given at birth? Right, so those are some of the screening questions that immigration officers asylum officers need to be trained and equipped because not everybody knows how to have those conversations, right? And so this policy protocol memo that was released by ICE in 2015 indicated a procedure in how agents could request that information to clearly and effectively identify and continue with the procedure that was specifically created for this particular community, well knowing that ICE wasn't equipped to detain LGBTQ folks. And this process was created to identify uh, to process with the purpose of release. And so you continue moving forward, even under the Obama administration, we weren't able to uh, end LGBTQ detention. This is also under the era when family detention had begun. Um, actually, Obama was one of the, the architects, along with uh, Secretary Jay Johnson from the Department of Homeland Security, they were the architects of family detention. And so it's really difficult to, to see that, um, that under the Obama era, there was a creation of a new system that today we're seeing the rippled, harsh conditions and the effect that it has had from the foundation that uh, the architects created. And so today we see family separation, which is not new, and LGBTQ detention continue to increase. And so how that plays a particular context in Washington state is that Washington had previously never intentionally housed LGBTQ detainees through what, we are, what are known to be trans pots. Many immigration detention centers would specifically create spaces for LGBTQ detainees under trans pot. And then this is where the staffers of those agencies would then be trained to effectively care for these folks. Um, the Northwest has never been known for that until uh, Monday, January 28th. And so until recently, the prior LGBTQ detention center, the Transpot Detention Center, was in New Mexico, Cibola, uh, where our partner Santa Fe Dreamers Project were working on the ground to connect the LGBTQ migrants with legal representation and community support. Uh, we've had a year-long partnership with them. And so when they would be released in New Mexico, we would connect them to hosts and sponsors here in the Northwest, in Washington State, uh, to welcoming homes and communities to, to support them through their immigration proceedings because getting out of the detention center is only one step of the immigration process that people have to undergo. 
Today, the Northwest houses intentionally trans detainees. Um, and while this information is relatively new, we can foresee that this will be a, an ongoing practice moving forward for the next couple of months, unfortunately. What's coming up then for this community? Yeah, so I mean, I would just start off by saying that immigration detention centers have no place in, to, to do in Washington state. Um, and we should never be in the business to detain and separate families, right? As an immigrant and refugee community, we continue to advocate that we shut down all immigration detention centers, not only in Washington state, but across the country. Um, and until we get there, until we continue to, to showcase how those detention centers have really further harmed our society, continue to perpetuate a, a system of violence and fear in our communities, um, and it doesn't really meet the end goal of what immigration detention center is really all about, the purpose of immigration detention center is for someone to continue with their civil matters of immigration and to make sure that someone shows up to court. No one should have to be separated or detained in a prison for that purpose. And so with that said, we were informed that the LGBTQ community was being transferred from New Mexico over to um, Washington State to the Northwest Detention Center. Again, just three days before they were actually transferred. Because we have a statewide system with Wyson. We had the teams in Yakima ready to respond on their arrival dates. On Tuesday morning, we received the alert Monday night that the flight was scheduled to arrive on Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock. And so we rapidly mobilized the Yakima Pride uh, organization. Uh, we, we rapidly mobilized the uh, Central Washington Justice for Our Neighbors in Ellensburg and the Yakima Immigrant Response Network. And with, with those three uh, organizations, as the 14 trans asylum seekers were arriving to for the first time ever to Washington State, the first thing that they saw coming out of that plane was a trans and pride flag and a sign that said, no están solas, which means you're not alone. And so I was able to speak with already six of the trans folks who were detained. And I just wanted to hear, you know, how, how has it been since they've arrived to our our beautiful evergreen state, right? Because I really pride ourselves in Washington State because we are one of the states that I hope that people can find it and call it home and can feel safe here, even in the very harsh conditions that they might be in. So, you know, the first thing that they told me was seeing those signs gave them this sense of relief. It gave them this feeling that people were there for them and that people were not going to let them, you know, rot in that place as they shared the words, right? Like they had not seen community for such a long time. Some of them have been there for three, six months, longer. And so for them to see this sign gave them hope. Uh, many of them are, are struggling with medical conditions that, you know, always gives them a further hardship in this journey. Um, and so for them seeing this, this community rallied and organized for them, gave them that hope that they needed to continue moving forward. How was it that you were able to make yourself visible in a in a space that you would think is so controlled in, in what can be seen and what can't be seen? The well-known ICE flights used to operate from the King County Boeingfield Airport. Um, and it, until it became known to the county that they were operating, which of course all of us knew already, and it was brought up to their attention in a, into an, an accountable form to the county executive, the executive chose to provide an executive order of no longer renewing the contract. And so through massive organizing on the ground from folks from like La Resistencia, Northwest, from ACLU of Washington, from Colectiva Legal del Pueblo, Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, many of us who came together, again, folks who are part of the network and folks who, who are all connected and understand there's a bigger picture to this, were able to rally and shortly after the King County executive released an executive order to no longer renew the contract. 
unfortunately, shortly after, within the first couple of days, uh, immigration custom enforcement and the broader immigration system has this tendencies of packing up their luggages and moving on to the next city. Um, and that's what happened, unfortunately. So uh, immigration enforcement operations packed their operations up and moved over to Yakima. However, the Yakima, the Yakima airport is a very public and central uh, airport that everything that operates there, you can see it in a very open form. The operations are not gated like they were in King County Boynfield Airport. And so everybody gets to see those eye flights. Yakima residents now have to live in a town where they get to see deportation flights every single day come, you know, leave out of our state. And you get to see young children, uh, young adults, mothers being forced into this plane, shackled up, having to leave the country. The amazing organization that has grown across the state, folks in Yakima, every single flight that has left, um, there has always been a sign that uh, from our organizing community, like the Yakima Immigrant Response Network, that just lets them know that they're not alone. And everybody that arrives gets to see that sign and, and reminds them that they're not alone. And so this is the infrastructure that we've developed. I will share that Washington State is one of the very few states who has this national uh, model, right, that could really be replicable in this moments across the nation. Because as folks continue to focus on Congress, we need to remind ourselves that our power comes from local communities. And so we're very lucky to live in a state where today we're able to work with each other um, so that our communities don't feel alone. As the Washington State Immigrant Solidarity Network thrives on the work of the service providers and organizers that are connected with it, Monserrat Padilla, its co-director, describes the struggle that some of the immigrant families in our community face. And tell me about the experience for the families that are either undocumented or whose family member might be detained or has already been deported. Tell me about what that experience looks like as you talk about the importance of these messages that can be seen from a plane or or getting off a plane. So I want to remind people that uh, immigration enforcement operations are not this abstract idea that happens in someone else's backyard and not ours. It happens in our own backyard here in Washington State. It happens consistently on a weekly basis, if not daily. And it happens all across Washington State, including Pacific County and Long Beach, where we don't even think that this would happen, right? It happens in Jefferson County, where uh, in Port Townsend, where, you know, people don't even perceive that there's immigrant communities there. It happens in Columbia City. We have this perception that we live in a sanctuary city and all of a sudden we're safe. So that's what I want to just let people know that, right? The second thing that I want people to know is some of the ways that immigration enforcement operates in Washington state. Uh, the primary form that folks continue to be identified for the, for the pipelines of deportation is people who have had some form of prior order of deportation or have been entangled with the broader immigration system in one way or another. The second folks continue to be folks who have been entangled with the criminal justice system, which then makes them a priority for deportation. Uh, the third way in how immigration enforcement has looked in Washington state has been people who have uh, attempted to access our the halls of justice through our court systems in the county levels. And immigration enforcement has now targeted those locations as prime locations to 
lead enforcement operations, uh, really putting a threat to public safety because when folks can no longer access the halls of justice, uh, crimes won't be reported, crimes, witnesses to those crimes won't be able to show up into the courthouses to testify. You know, survivors of domestic violence won't be able to report their abusers no more because they're too afraid of what will come after, even if them as a victim would, you know, will have to report this. And so um, that's really one of the, the other ways that we've been seeing immigration enforcement in Washington state, especially in central and eastern Washington, like Grand County, Adams County, but also in Skagit and Whatcom County, as well as Thurston County, and really across the state in multiple areas. And the other way that we continue to see is in uh, through workplace audits and rates. So, so people who have had employment, who have had to survive to feed their families and make ends meet, are now being targeted for that very much that that opportunity to have a job. And so uh, we foresee um, these uh, policies continue to create suffocating conditions for our communities to really not, ev- not be able to look left or right and, and find hope. Um, and so, and finally, people who end up as collateral to the immigration operations, uh, which what for many of us means is code to racial discrimination, um, where immigration agents uh, go looking, f- looking for someone and they come in contact with someone else and they racially profile. And then oftentimes they force them into, you know, admitting different information or just, you know, their own their own tactics often, you know, has people sharing more than they need to and not knowing even who they are, right, when the, who they're interacting with. Because oftentimes immigration custom enforcement doesn't wear uniforms. And so when people are interacting with them, people don't know who they're interacting with. When people get pulled over by them, oftentimes they, people perceive them to be police when they're really not police. And so that's the other way that the final way that many people end up in the deportation machine as collateral to the operations. That's a little bit of what I want to share. And so today, what does that look like when some when a family member gets detained? Um, you know, well, the first immediate impact is just the pain that the family has to go through for family separation. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, what we need to know is that sometimes that was the breadwinner of the house. And maybe there was two breadwinners in the house. But what you need to realize is that now um, financial decisions need to be made and because those financial decisions need to be made oftentimes families go hungry families are at the edge of homelessness because they need to decide whether they pay the rent or they pay the attorney to release their father or release their 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 mother or release the grandmother right and so choices need to be made economic choices that oftentimes drive our communities into economic hardship um, and often face hung- facing hunger and homelessness. And so, and that's only, you know, immediate aftermath. In addition to the mental uh, and the trauma that is faced by the communities, um, today, with again, going back to the suffocating conditions, many um, reports of self-harm have started to rise up in this moment. And so the need to organize mental, behavioral, and physical um, health support is required today now more than ever. Montserrat Padilla, co-director at Washington Immigrant and Solidarity Network, Wyson. Thank you. Thank you. 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas. This is Yuko Kadama. Music and Ideas. This is KBCS, a broadcasting service at Bellevue College. Careers start here. Fast track your entry or re-entry into the workforce with a 30-credit certificate as a database analyst or database user specialist. Check out bellevuecollege.edu slash start here. 2020 was a difficult year for undocumented people in our community. An unprecedented number of people were detained and deported during the Trump administration. 
In February, KBCS's Sam Britt covered a protest outside Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. As Japanese-American elders, their children, grandchildren, and many others spoke about the impacts of incarcerating and targeting immigrants in this country. The event was organized in partnership with Tsuru for Solidarity, Densho, Seattle Japanese-American Citizens League, and La Resistencia. I'm here at Tsuru for Solidarity's Day of Remembrance and Action outside the Northwest Detention Center, or NWDC. Despite the rain and the wind, before long the streets outside of the Northwest Detention Center were flooded with people. Huddled under umbrellas and tents surrounding the stage, protesters, activists, and concerned citizens waited patiently for the events to formally begin. The crowd is filled with Japanese-American elders that once faced incarceration by the United States, as well as the children and families of migrants that today face deportation or incarceration at facilities like the one here in Tacoma. NWDC is one of the largest immigrant detention facilities in the country, owned and operated by the for-profit corporation Geo Group. Inside, more than 1,400 undocumented immigrants are housed, many of them for an undetermined period of time. The Japanese-American group Tsuru for Solidarity organized the event today to protest the separation and incarceration of migrant families, something the Japanese community in the United States bears painful memories of. I was born surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers in Crystal City, Texas. Uh, my father was separated from my mother and older siblings for almost three years. And uh, I'm a product of the reunion, you know. And uh, I know it, my father never recovered emotionally or economically from what was done to him. And my older siblings, people their age, have memories of being incarcerated, but they claim they don't. And I think it, it comes out in other ways from their suppressed memories. And uh, you don't find them at events like this. I'm hopeful that someday they will because for many, attending events like this is a healing. That's James Arima, a survivor of the Japanese internment camps. He shared with me the lasting effects that discrimination and mass incarceration have had on him, his family, and his generation growing up post-World War II. Dr. Satsuki Ina is a psychotherapist and founding member of Suru for Solidarity. She's also a survivor of internment herself and has devoted her life to studying the generational trauma her community still suffers with. Can, can you describe to me your, your work and what you've discovered about group trauma? Right. So, um, you know, collective historic trauma is something that has been inflicted on multiple groups of people of color in, in America. And uh, particularly, my concern has been about children who are in this constant state of fear, separation, uh, incarceration themselves, uh, that when the nervous system and the brain is developing, to be in that state actually alters physiologically the, the brain functioning. So the child then grows up with a lot of anxiety and easily triggered defensive responses because of that. So it's influenced by culture too. So in my community, lots of anxiety and depression. And group trauma can touch more than just those who experienced the traumatic event. Its effects can be seen for generations to come. Mike Ishii is a spoken word artist, another founder of Sewer for Solidarity, and the son of parents who went through the horrors of incarceration. 
what is confusing for us who were not incarcerated but our descendants is that we feel the trauma that was passed down through our parents to us and yet it's not happening so you you don't understand why you have terrible anxiety why you have panic attacks why you lack confidence why you feel so driven to have to do things perfectly because after the war, when they tried to come back into society, my family was targeted with violence. They shot our windows out. They spray-painted death threats in front of the house. They would wait till my father left for work, and they would call my mother and say, we're going to come kill you now. And who is, who is they? Our white neighbors in SeaTac. children of incarcerated Japanese Americans remembered their loved ones lost and the damage done to their families and communities. And the still young children and wives of incarcerated migrants held behind the tall gray walls and barbed wire of the Northwest Detention Center remembered the faces of those they had taken from them. But there was also hope. Children folded paper cranes, tsurus in Japanese, a symbol for peace, compassion, and hope. People played music, beat drums, read poetry, chanted, and remembered. Suru for Solidarity is planning their largest action yet in Washington, D.C. this June. The violin you just heard was performed live by Kishibashi. With KBCS, I'm Sam Britt. Thanks to Yuko Kodama for help with editing. 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas. This is Yuko Kodama. This show is the first of a three-part series of local stories highlighting events of this year. These stories are possible thanks to the support of listeners like you. All of the pieces in this show can be found by visiting kbcs.fm and going to the News tab or subscribing to our podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify, and searching under KBCS. 91.3 KBCS, Community Radio, I'm Yuko Kodama. In March of this year, the COVID-19 pandemic hit Washington State. Governor Jay Inslee announced for all restaurants to be closed to in-house dining. Seattle's Chinatown International District, a neighborhood largely made up of immigrant-run business establishments, was among the most impacted neighborhoods by this order, given the pandemic spread in our region during Chinese New Year festivities. Jamie Lee, Director of Community Initiatives at the Seattle Chinatown International District Public Development Authority, spoke with me about the pandemic's impact on people in Seattle's Chinatown International District. Obviously, the coronavirus and its effects have affected across the city for small businesses, but we saw the effects starting in early February. So it's been happening longer in this district. We noticed a 
decline in business sales. A lot of our restaurants saw decline starting in early February. Coronavirus came out in January in Asia, but then when we had the first case in King County here in February, we saw a decline in people wanting to come and patronize and eat at specifically Chinese restaurants for fear of contracting the virus. I think the other thing for a lot of people to understand is that that coincided with our Lunar New Year. The Lunar New Year this year is the very end of January, but it's similar to like the Christmas season. We kind of have a Lunar New Year season where in the weeks following the New Year that there's lots of celebrations that happen here, banquet dinners, sometimes of two, three hundred people. So those started to get canceled starting in February into mid-February. And and so that means that the restaurants that a lot of them rely on this time of year to survive um, have lost that revenue. We knew that was going to be an impact going into February, but then things have just gotten so dire since then that we're not really sure. I, I To be honest, I'm not sure how our businesses will recover from this. Lee continues describing the characteristics the Seattle Chinatown International District has had that add to the challenges people in this community face at this time. There's been a lot of assistance that's been put out through the city and the state, but a lot of it's in English. And so we have been trying to advocate around getting the information in language, and we're having conversations within our organizations on whether or not we just pony up and pay for it, or we try to get support from the government to basically translate a lot of the small business loan packages that are coming out. That's the first thing that has actually just been our biggest struggle is like none of this is coming out in language and even if it is in language it's pretty advanced for a lot of our immigrant and refugee businesses because many of them have an adversity to talking about financials to actually sharing that. That's just culturally not the norm here. Also thinking about taking a loan out when they're really honestly thinking about if they're going to close. And the other thing that I think that a lot of people don't recognize down here is that a lot of our ownership in our buildings here are local owners, generational owners of different immigrant families that have purchased the buildings here and that have passed it down to their families. And the buildings are not as financially stable as they would be maybe in other neighborhoods. And so We know that a lot of the businesses might be asking for rent concessions or some kind of support around the rent, and there's a concern that our property owners won't be able to afford that. And so the trickle effect of the businesses losing revenue, not being able to pay their rent, what does that mean for our property owners? And then the other side of it for all of us is that in addition to doing small business work, we house over 500 low-income residents here in the CID. Some of them work in the businesses, some of them work in businesses across the city, and so as they start to lose their wages, we are starting to think about how will we help them with rental assistance so that they're able to maintain and stay in their home. And so that kind of trickle effect is something that we are going to see, and I'm sure we'll see across the city, but is one of the first things that we started talking about here when this all started because we wanted to make sure that we were prepared, and I don't even know how you prepare for something like this, to try to address a lot of those things that might happen as this shutdown continues to go on. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't know is that we have some of the highest concentration of elderly in the CID, so we have quite a few elderly folks. They're now afraid to come out of their homes because they don't want to catch the virus, they don't want to interact with people that might have it, and so we're talking about ways that we can get our residents food, just even from the food bank or whatever, so that they're able to maintain staying in their home and staying healthy. 
That was Jamie Lee, Director of Community Initiatives at the Seattle Chinatown International District Public Development Authority, speaking with me in March. 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas. I'm Yuko Kodama. This is part one of A Year in Review 2020, a three-part series highlighting local stories as we go through some of the events of this year. All the stories on this show and other stories produced by KBCS can be found at kbcs.fm or by subscribing to the podcast wherever you source those, like SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. I'm Yuko Kodama. Small businesses around the area and country have taken a huge hit due to mandated restrictions and shutdowns due to the coronavirus. However, it's the community members from these businesses that have led the outreach and service to the community in the form of community kitchens and other services for people experiencing housing or food insecurity. I spoke with Laura Kleis, founder and CEO of Intentionalist, an online directory of businesses owned by diverse people in our community. What were some really inspiring moments that got you to where you are or or that keep you going, you know, as you work Intentionalist? I would say that I have learned more and grown more as a community leader, as an activist, as a good neighbor, as a result of the time that I've spent with small business owners, especially over the past two and a half years with intentionalists than I ever thought imaginable. Oftentimes we'll use the expression, oh, I feel so humbled. Uh, as a way of conveying gratitude or appreciation for recognition. But when I say that small business owners have truly humbled me in the best ways possible, what I want to convey is just how much their example of grit and creativity and caretaking of those most in need in our communities gives me the fuel to do what I do every day. And I think that over the course of 2020, we have seen numerous examples of brick and mortar small businesses in our communities at a time when they are most in peril, thinking not just how do I ensure my survival, but how do I take care of the members of my community most in need? So in the earliest moments of the state of Washington's stay home, stay healthy order, I got a text message from Melissa Miranda, who is the owner of Musong, a Filipino forward restaurant that actually just opened this year. And she texted me to let me know that she was shutting down their operations so that they could pivot as a restaurant toward opening and operating a community kitchen to ensure that folks experiencing food insecurity would have a place to go, no questions asked. And in addition to offering that service, she also engaged countless members of the community who were fortunate enough to have means 
to help fund that outreach and service to the community. And people like Melissa, people like Christy Brown of That Brown Girl Cooks, people like Tamara Murphy and Linda DeLello Morton of Terra Pilata, who set up the Food is Love project uh, to provide similar services to those experiencing food insecurity. I mean, there are countless examples of business owners thinking first of what community need is, and then providing an easy way for all of us who share those values to be a part of their solution. Um, what you're saying is uh, not, not only what um, businesses uh, do in terms of, you know, um, you know, making a sustainable living for themselves, but, but really um, how they can give back. You've seen more of that than um, through, through your work or, or even before you started doing this work with Intentionalist. That was Laura Kleis, founder and CEO of Intentionalist, an online directory source for people seeking information on businesses owned by Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ, and other diverse communities. Your family and friends rely on you to help them understand the real story behind the day's headlines. Your experience, education, and daily commitment make a difference. Tune in early. Progressive Weekday Mornings on 91.3 KBCS. KBCS Community Radio. I'm Yuko Kodama. 2020 brought coronavirus to America. Not only did it take a physical or fatal toll on many, it affected our economy, lifestyles, work, and the emotional impacts from this virus can't be overlooked. I spoke with Seattle resident Talisha Harold, who before the pandemic was a makeup artist and worked in restaurants. Her story is like many. When the news of a local shutdown hit the area, she immediately found herself jobless and faced with how she was going to make ends meet. When I knew that I was laid off, the same day I heard that the grocery stores were hiring and doing job fairs. And so Monday morning, I was in line. I stood in line for about three hours. And in line was like, a lot of restaurant industry people, but folks from all over the place. The grocery store where I work at, there are research scientists. Their projects have been froze for now because it isn't essential at the moment. There are folks who worked at the airport. So many of us have been laid off. Grocery stores are hiring a lot of new employees. A lot of the new hires are folks that have been laid off. Have you heard that there were a lot of people who were in the grocery business uh -huh. who decided to stop coming to work because of the concern of their exposure? Yes, I've, I've talked with employees that have been around for a while and they're like, yeah, our department is down because this person, their family is concerned about them coming to work and getting sick. And this person too. So now what do you do in your work now at, at the grocery store? 
So I am doing e-commerce and e-commerce is the order online. Someone in the store goes and shops for your groceries, gets them ready for you. The shopper comes curbside and picks them up. It's a service that was already in place, which is fantastic because to have these infrastructures already in place, it's just ramping up because folks are staying home and using this service as a way to get groceries and to be able to stay home. So that's what I'm doing. So I'm out in the grocery store shopping. I wear a mask and the mask really is just to protect other people. It's not obviously going to protect me because it's not an N95, but it's with the assumption that I am asymptomatic and I'm also doing all of the hand washing, constantly washing my hands, wearing gloves. The most challenging thing is being able to physically distance the recommended six feet. It is very, very challenging with maneuvering around shoppers. And then it's also very challenging doing the work behind the scenes with the other employees. In my mind, you know, I can see this person going down the aisles with a shopping cart. What I can't see so well is what's going on after you get all those groceries in the back room, you know, setting everything up to send off. Yeah. So um, the shopping is done with these carts that are designed to keep the orders separate. So there are these electronic devices that are programmed and have four orders at a time. And so it sends you through the store and tells you exactly where to go. I mean, I know a lot about food and I know my way around a grocery store and I still find it very helpful. So it's, it's just like anyone could do this. So then that organization continues because you have frozen foods, you have foods that are shelf stable and then you have foods that need to be refrigerated so then using the same electronic device and this whole system go to the back and it's kind of like a little workshop where carts are moving around and bins are being moved and there are scanners and the groceries get placed in their place where they should go for their waiting kind of holding period whether they're frozen refrigerated shelf stable and then when the customer is ready to pick up their order you go right back through that like little workshop setup and regather their items that are in bins like all of this person's stuff that's refrigerated is in this number bin all of this customers frozen items are in the freezer in this numbered bin they all have the same number and then this person with that number also has some shelf-stable items that are over in that area. So you go swoop up all their stuff. Everything gets scanned in and scanned out. It's, I mean, it's really amazing. We take it out to the curbside. And, of course, we've, you know, we've got gloves. We've been sanitizing everything. Yeah, then we take the things out and we say, here's your stuff. We keep the six feet from them, too. Like, they pop the trunk open. But it's nonstop. Sometimes I go to work at five o'clock in the morning. I've been there as, as late as like nine o'clock. Have you heard anything about uh, people getting hazard pay at the grocery store? Oh yeah, I'm getting hazard pay. I'm getting two extra bucks an hour, which 
I'm, I really appreciate, but just being in this situation of being laid off and working a job that puts my life in danger and I'm making about a third of my normal income. So the grocery store is not responsible for COVID-19. They're not responsible for my huge reduction in income. <laughs> but um, yes, we are getting hazard pay. It's just an interesting position to be in. I'm gonna choose to take this job and work outside of home because I can't wait six weeks on unemployment. The unemployment system is flooded. I can't wait on this stimulus check from the federal government. It's this calculated risk because it is risky. I'm thankful that I had this as an option. And there are other people that I'm seeing working that are, I mean, we know that this isn't just a, a disease that impacts older people. We know that young people are, are getting this. But when I see when I see older people having to put their lives at risk because they need income, it's um, it's really hard to see that. I mean, for me, I'm young, I'm healthy. I live alone, so I'm not putting anyone in my home at risk. I don't have any underlying health issues. Like I'm still taking a risk, but for folks that are more vulnerable, they're not just vulnerable physically, they're vulnerable also financially. And they're just having to make this very hard choice. I'm working with at least four people that are above 60 that just got hired when I got hired because they were laid off and had to come do something else. Uh, there are people that got laid off and have like young children at home, people that have pregnant spouses. People are making this decision out of necessity and it is just tragic that folks have to risk their lives to be able to buy food or pay whatever bill they need to pay the grocery store they're doing their best to provide us with the things that we need to keep ourselves safe but even working full-time at the grocery store my rent is like over 50 percent of my income i have to get another job so I have also decided to start doing Instacart. And this is a new challenge, getting my hands on disinfectant agents. There, um, there's not a lot of them out there. I'm making another calculated risk. What, what are some takeaways from this whole experience? Um, I would like to encourage everyone to fashion some sort of a face cover for your your mouth and your nose to protect other people folks are wearing masks to protect you please wear some sort of facial covering to protect 
other people. Other takeaways are the pandemic of COVID-19 is affecting everyone on every level and folks are going out and working and risking their lives during this time to make a living. And I think it is important for us to be thinking about the most vulnerable communities in our country. And, you know, I'm working class. And so I'm, this is just what the working class people do. We show up and we get the job done. And so the takeaway is, man, working class people are amazing. They are amazing. And I'm so proud of them. So proud. That was Talisha Harold speaking with me about her experience as a gig worker in April. This is part one of a special Year in Review 2020 series of The Grit through the end of the week. All of the stories featured for the rest of the week on The Grit tell stories of 2020 by the people in our community. KBCS volunteers, students, and staff gathered them throughout the year. These stories are possible due to listeners like you. To listen to more KBCS stories, you can visit kbcs.fm and click on the News tab. Or subscribe to our podcast under KBCS on sources like Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. We're almost to the end of the year. If you'd like to make a donation to support these stories from our community, please go to kbcs.fm and click on the green Donate button. Today's show ends with a King County service essential to the area and used by thousands, King County Metro. I interviewed a few King County Metro employees in April as they demanded protections for themselves as essential workers during these complex and uncertain times. People have kind of a general sense of, you know, they see bus drivers around. So it's like, oh, I know them. I know what they do. Tell me, what does it look like from a transit operator's perspective? All right. Well, we have a sign in time that we have to be there at a certain time. Then we get our schedules, our transfers. They have uh, what they call a reroute board that we have to look at to make sure that there are no deviations on the route. You know, sometimes there's construction and certain streets are closed or certain stops are blocked off. We have to look at that to make sure that we know what's going on before we get stuck somewhere in a 60-foot bus or whatever. And um, then we go out to the bus. We have, from the time we sign in, we have 18 minutes until we pull the bus out and head to our starting points. And then from there, we're driving our routes, picking people up along the way. And uh, I'm sort of glad that you are asking how things are from a bus driver's perspective, because things aren't necessarily what they seem. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, it's just a simple job. You're just sitting on your behind and turning corners, but there's so much more to it than that. Any job where you're dealing with the general public is going to be a little difficult because you're dealing with all sorts of personalities. And, you know, there are some people who have mental health issues. There are some people who are homeless. March was a really strange month to me. So at the beginning of March, 
you know, we all know how it first started. There were a few cases at the uh, nursing home in Kirkland and nobody was overly concerned. You know, beginning of March, people were saying, oh, I'm not really worried. It's just like the flu. The flu is worse. But then as the days went on, then people began to see how serious and, and deadly this whole thing really was. So what I noticed at first, because early on, a, a lot of people were told to work from home if possible. So what I began to notice at first was that, hey, the streets are empty. This is kind of nice for me. <laughs> I don't have the big crowds. There's not a lot of traffic. Then the kids were out of school. So that's what I noticed first, that the the crowds were kind of, you know, petering out traffic, you know, and, and actually it was a joy to go to work. It really was because no one was, no one was there. Then it got to be, things began to get real. What I noticed, I, I want to say near the middle of the month, things started closing down and what everyone was saying, you know, it, all the news stations and hand washing, how important hand washing is. Be careful touching things. Be careful, you know, touching your face. There is a microphone that we can pull down or depending on the bus, you know, to make announcements. When we get calls or when we have to call the transit control center, there is the, an old fashioned phone receiver that you've got to put up to your face to hear or to speak. As far as strapping people in, it well, let's just say I have a passenger in a wheelchair. Well, in order for me to secure that wheelchair, I've got to be within six feet of him or her. I can't secure that wheelchair without being within six to eight feet of that person, depending on that. And then as far as the um, backdoor entry, well, I, I guess in theory, great. Okay, people are getting on the back door. That's keeping them away from, from me. But that doesn't mean they're going to stay back there. You know, they can wander up to the front. If they have a question to ask, they're going to have to be less than six feet away from me in order for me to even hear them with the engine noise and uh, background noise. You know, oftentimes I can't hear them six feet away. You know, they've got to be a little closer to me. And then if they just decide they want to sit at the front of the bus, some people need to be there because maybe they're going someplace that's unfamiliar and they need to be able to get their bearings. And you can't always see what street it is, you know, from the back of the bus, you got to be a little closer. And then what am I to do with them? There's no way for me to enforce that, which in turn leaves me vulnerable. 91.3 KBCS. That was Metro bus driver Cheryl Jones, whom I interviewed last week. Thank you for listening to this very special edition of The Grit here on KBCS 91.3 Music and Ideas, a year in review 2020. It's the first in a three-part series reflecting on 2020 with local stories produced by our very own KBCS news team. Tune in for more for the rest of this week. Logic Amen, Martha Baskin, Zachary Brady, Kevin Henry, Adria McGee, Ruth Bly, Sam Britt, Gol Hogugi, and Mari McMiniman are news producers. The music in the show is by WD40, Shonuff, Logic Amen, and Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to Jesse Callahan for producing this year in review series. 
I'm your host and KBCS News Director, Yuko Kodama. To hear more grassroots local reporting and find any of the stories used for this show, you can visit kbcs.fm and hit the News tab. Or search KBCS on your source for podcasts like SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you.